Well, good morning, everyone. Um, let us turn to our passage today that I'll be going over, and it's Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 16. I'll give you all just a moment to turn to there. Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. Paul here is continuing this thought that Josh started preaching on, on last week. I keep saying yesterday. I don't know why I do that, but on last week. Okay, let's begin. So, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be long, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would work through your Holy Spirit in us to bring to remembrance, Lord, to teach us your holy word, Lord, to instruct us and help us to apply it to our lives. I pray that you would bring to fruition the things that you would have be brought into our lives, Lord, that we'd be like you in character, Lord, that we would build each other up in brotherly love, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you would empower me, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to speak your truths today, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we would be also be attentive and listening to your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let it ring and resound in our ears and in our hearts this morning. In Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So I titled our, the sermon this morning, The Effectual Mature Church in Christ the effectual mature church in Christ. And I have three main points. These points are the effectual mature church has sound doctrine. The effectual mature church has sound doctrine. Point number two, the effectual mature church is unified. The effectual mature church is unified. Number three, the effectual mature church serves in love. Now to begin with a little academic work at the start, why did I choose the words effectual, mature? On doing a simple dictionary study of the words, uh, working properly, or you could say it another way, functional operation, which is stated in verse 16, I found several words to help describe what it meant. According to the dictionary, it meant working correctly, thriving, living, alive, and effectual. Effectual. I chose the word effectual because I think it communicates well overall the effectual calling that God to his own desires and plans calls and equips 
the saints to salvation and to whatever role and gifts that he so desires to that certain end. So what is the effectual mature church in Christ? What, what, how do we define that? Well, the effectual mature church in Christ is the local and universal assembly of believers called by God and gifted by God to be the representation of and in the likeness of Christ to the world abroad. Say so that again. The effectual mature church in Christ is the local and universal assembly of believers called by God and gifted by God to the re representation of and in the likeness of Christ to the world abroad. Let's go to our passage, Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here in these verses, Paul continues in the same thought of the unity in Christ that we have and he applies it to the area of the maturing Christian, indicating that the mature Christian will be developing these things by the mighty work of Christ through the Spirit that is worked in them, to the effect of what Christ desires, thus benefiting the church of all the members, collectively supporting one another, using the gifts and graces that the Lord has given them glorifying God and being a testament of Christ to the world around. This unity of faith and knowledge of Christ is not just a head knowledge of, of who Christ is. It's not just a head knowledge of what Christ accomplished. It is even more than salvific knowledge. But it is a deep personal knowing which brings the believer to maturity sound doctrine and likeness of Christ. Last week, Josh talked a little about the role of pastors and shepherds of the church, and this week we're going to talk about it a little more. Paul, in several of his letters, exhorts all leaders, pastors, pastors shepherds, and evangelists to teach sound doctrine and to correct and reprove doctrine that is not correct or true. Y'all would turn to 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5 with me, please. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, 
evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Um, sometimes in our culture here, we've, we know that we've seen, we've probably experienced some of this in our Christian life, that somehow that if we obey God in certain ways, that he is going to bless us. It's going to be some means of gain to us, our motivation. So then our motivation becomes, our motivations become, if I do this for God, then God will do this. I, although God does bless us at times for his obedience, that is not the primary, person, primary purpose of our obedience. Paul here says that anyone that teaches that understands nothing, that he's conceited, and that that type of teaching is divisive. I think we can all point to probably churches that, that teach certain things in that fashion that are not healthy. Romans 16, 17, if you would, if you would turn there with me, please. Romans 16, verse 17. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So here, instructing the leaders and pastors to watch out for these people that rise up in the church to call these, cause these divisions, warns them about them. Here's a news flash. There are actually some people who thrive on causing divisions in the church. And one way they do it is by spreading unsound doctrine. And they can be very cunning at it. Don't even realize it's even going on. Sometimes it could happen in the background. Sometimes they can try to undermine the very teaching that you're trying to, to teach. Watch out for these type of things, Paul says. Letting unsound doctrine abound in the church is like a poison or type of sin that, that can spread in the church, throwing many off course, ultimately by design by the devil, the evil one, to cause harmful disunity in the church, affecting the spiritual growth of so many saints. In my experience, when I've been a part of a church body, with, uh, with seems like they have many grievous injuries in the flock. There's been a lot of, lot of hurt carrying, carried by the individuals that are part of that body. Um, and the body is not unified. What, what I have found at its core, unsound doctrine. stems from unsound doctrine. Unsound doctrine being taught and preached. It can undermine the very efforts of those trying to be unified. In my experience also, when I, when I found a body that is, that is unified, it seems like there's not a lot of ruckus in the church. There's not a lot of disunity. There's a lot of members that aren't 
wounding each other, even though that we carry wounds from the outside, from life, but within the body, there's not a lot, of, a lot of that going on, even though it can happen, it will happen at times, but there is resolve there and there's um, coming back together and harmony of the believers. What I found is when that is occurring, I found that the core, sound doctrine, I found sound preaching and mature Christians, and also maturing Christians. Of course, there's going to be those that are coming to Christ, so they're going to be maturing in their walk. They're not going to be, people aren't going to be stagnant in their growth. Not a bunch of infant Christians, not, not Christians that are on the milk, if you will, going over the same issues over and over again in Scripture. All these things, the sound doctrine helps bring us to maturity in Christ, knowing that though we this side of heaven, we will never meet absolute full maturity. All those things will happen when we are finally glorified with Christ and we pass through the waters of death. But nevertheless, those things we should strive for. So this brings me to my first point. The effectual mature church has sound doctrine. So that we're talking a little bit about sound doctrine, I thought I would define it. What is sound doctrine? Well, one definition, this comes from Ligonier Ministries. It is the teaching from God about God that directs us to the glory of God. It is the teaching from God about God that directs us to the glory of God. In the article by written in Ligon and Ministries by Scott Swain, the article is called The Ob Object of Sound Doctrine. It says this, Christian doctrine has a twofold object. The primary object of doctrine is God. The secondary object of is all things in relation to God. Doctrine teaches us to see God as the one from whom and through whom and to whom all things exist. And doctrine directs our lives to this, God's glory. Romans 11, 36 and 1 Corinthians 8, 6. When we examine the twofold object of doctrine as, as it is presented to us, in the Holy Scripture, a definite pattern emerges. Emerges. Romans 16, Romans 6, 17, 2 Timothy 1, 13. The pattern of sound doctrine is, number one, Trinitarian. Biblical. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and Titus 3, 4 through 7. Trinitarian. Number two, it's creation affirming. 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Number three, sound doctrine is also gospel-centered. 1 Timothy 3, 16, Titus 2, 11 through 14. And number four, sound doctrine is church-oriented. 
1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. So the, the, the Bible's distinctive, distinctive doctrinal pattern has left its mark on some of the most widely accepted summaries of Christian teaching, such as the Apostles' Creed and the Heidelberg Catechism, and has informed the shape of historic Christian worship. Especially for us, especially for us that are Protestants, sound doctrine includes the five solas. Five solas which are according to the scriptures alone, that, have, that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. See, that doctrinal statement is gospel-centered, it's Christ-centered. Here at GCC, at Grace Covenant, one of the other doctrines that we hold to, for example, the doctrines of grace. Doctrines of grace, which is known as TULIP. Total depravity, sin has corrupted man's entire being, unconditional election. Nothing you can do to be saved. You can't earn sal salvation through your works. Limited atonement, that Christ's atonement was effectual for those who would believe. Completely perfect. Irresistible grace. God's grace is irresistible towards the elect because he is because God has changed his desires to incline his desires towards him. Preservation of the saints. God preserves those being saved from regeneration, from regeneration unto glorification. Doctrine includes Christology. Christology matters. It affects everything. It affects our worship. In our liturgy, we have a time of citing confessions and creeds. And again, like last Sunday, we recited the Chalcedonian definition this Sunday. One reason is because it's very dense, but also because where we at are where we at here in Ephesians. We're looking to we are in Christ. Saints that are in Christ. We share this unity in Christ. Well, who is he? Who is Christ? That's why we recited the Chalcedonian definition. Sinclair Ferguson in his podcast, Things Unseen on Friday of this week, said this. Without Christology and the deep thinkings about Christ, we don't have a very good foundation in which to live our lives. I agree with that statement and evaluation. So our sound doctrine should affect the way that we live, then shouldn't it? And indeed it does. It affects how we worship. Why we worship. It affects how we serve each other and how we lead and raise our families. We've been going through this in the past and Josh's Sunday school class on how our worldview instructs us the root of how we raise our children. Instructs us on how we do family worship. Part of that worldview includes sound doctrine and part of that sound doctrine includes Christology. So as leaders, leaders and pastors of the church, Josh and I's job 
is to teach sound doctrine, to instruct, to exhort, also to correct and rebuke unsound doctrine. And this because Christ gives us gifts according to the graces and according to the Spirit who has, who has come because of his ascension. So because Christ has ascended, we learned last week that Christ, after Christ's ascension, ascension, that he distributes these gifts through the Holy Spirit to the saints. This is one of the areas he does it, pastors and shepherds. Sinclair Ferguson said in this pod, podcast, things unseed last week on Pentecost and the ascension of Christ, that after Christ ascended, he asked the Father that he would send the Holy Spirit. And that at Pentecost, though it entails the Holy Spirit coming down upon the apostles, that, they, that event that surrounded Pentecost, that event wasn't necessarily about them being able to speak in different tongues and languages. Yes, that was going on, but that was not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is that it was about giving testament about who Jesus was and what he has done. In Acts chapter 2, you can read about this. I'm not going to go there for time, but in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, Peter was empowered to preach about Christ. The Spirit was literally bringing things to mind what Christ taught about himself. It's literally bringing things to mind about how to live. But mainly, Peter's first sermon, it was about Christ, about his sacrifice. Peter started his sermon quoting in a passage from Joel, then led into sharing about Christ instead of just preaching about the, what the Holy Spirit was doing in that moment. Many times I think an emphasis has been put on this miracle of talking in tongues, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. I've seen this blown out of proportion many times. All, all people celebrating Pentecost Sunday and sometimes certain sects of Christianity, they, they tend to focus in on, on just that gift. There's a lot more that's going on there. It was, it was actually it was about Christ. It was the apostles being able to preach about Christ. And because there was this miracle happening, it was basically saying, this is God's seal of approval that I have established these men to do this. It says in the passage that people, the hearers of the event, they were wondering, what does all this mean? So Peter was explaining it to them. Peter was preaching sound doctrine because it was Christ-centered. We have missed this sometimes in the church. Too many times an emphasis has been placed and are on the wrong things. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, to remind you of the things that I have said and done. Peter wasn't preaching if you're in Christ and you'll be able to do all these miracles and healings and all these things. No, he, he, was, he was preaching Christ. And it says that many believed and were saved. His sermon was Christ-centered. 
Sound doctrine includes sound preaching, and sound preaching is Christ-centered and not man-centered. That's where some some churches have have blown things out of proportion. The emphasis is is on man. It's on man being able to do these things. It's man receiving these benefits. Although we do receive benefits from God, but it's not centered on Christ and on the glory of God. Let's go back to our passage, Ephesians 4, 13 through 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed, into, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Sound doctrine produces the fruit of maturity and the life of the Christian. Not that sound doctrine in of itself has the power to do this, but by the power of the Holy Spirit through the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. Thus we are resilient to the cunning of man and schemes which would otherwise carry us away and be blown about. Basically, many of us are, many people are blown about by winds of different doctrines because they're just not in the Word. The Scriptures haven't been speaking to them. The Holy Spirit's not using the Word to speak into their lives. Well, I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, be in the Word. Pray that the Holy Spirit reveal to you the Word, that He would guide you and instruct you. The word will help us to be unified, unified in our doctrine, but unified in our in Christ. Because we have sound doctrine, we are even more unified with one another with one another, excuse me. For we have see our we see our roles in the body of not meeting an end to our desires. The spiritual gifts that God bestows on us, the roles that He is the, the things that He has blessed with blessed us with to, to serve in the church. They're not they're not meeting an end to our desires, but they're a means to an end to God's desires and for God's glory. So one of those desires is that we are one in Christ, that we are using our gifts to build each other up, which brings glory to God. We are united in doing this together. And I'm not talking about uniformity necessarily neither is it just everyone having to agree on every every doctrinal statement but this is a supernatural working of our commonality in the manifestation of the triune godhead you see the father the son and the holy spirit are one just as we are one in christ there's something much deeper going on at work here. The Holy Spirit brings us together literally just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. So we are one. Jesus prays for this himself. He prays the Father to pray for them that they would be one just as you and I are one. This brings me to my second point. The, the effectual mature church 
is unified in Christ. Unified in Christ. So it is, in fact, that our practical unity is a direct descent from our positional unity. Our positional unity is the unity that we have in Christ because of what Christ has done. We are righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. We are made holy because He was holy. We have been set from the bondage of sin because Christ sets us free. We've been set free of the wrath and judgment of God. Why? Because Christ took that upon Himself. See how this is working. We, all, we have all received the mercy and graces of God. This is some of the things that we share as unity, all the saints. We all receive the mercy and graces of God. We all share in our baptism, which is into the triune God, into the name, the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Every believer shares in this one baptism. We all share in one faith, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins according to the Scriptures. We all share in one Heavenly Father. Each one of us is given a measure of grace to re believe, repent, and a measure of grace of spiritual gifts, though not all being the same. Not all of us are gifted in the same manner and to the same degree. We all share in, that, in the gifting. And practical uni unity in which Paul is talking about here is the outflow of from our positional unity. So the Holy Spirit within us is actively working in the life of the believers, producing these things like the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to these likenesses, though each one of us, as I stated before, dif differing in degree from one another. Let's turn to Galatians 5, 22-25. fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been cruci have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to have these fruits of the Spirit, and it also helps keep us, keeps us in step with Him at the same time. But that is part of our responsibility as well. He's not just saying, the Holy Spirit works in His way, just go home and sit on the couch. No, that's not what it's, it, it's, it's, not what it's saying. It's, we do have some responsibility. Our responsibility is keeping a step with the Spirit. See how all this is tying together. Let us go back to the beginning of Paul's statement in Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. This is what he's saying. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called.
takes some involvement there. It takes us some, some action. With all humility and gentleness. Ties right into with Mike's teaching this morning. Being gentleness. We're gentle because he is gentle. We're, we're gentle because we ought to be gentle because he's gentle. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Here we are again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So now we all share in the unity of identity. Unity of identity. We are no longer slave, free, Jew, or Greek. We have been given new names that which we belong to, to him. We are in Christ. This is a common unity of every saint. We are all now found in him. We are in Christ, and we have the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, which indwells in us. The walls of division have fallen. There is no other stronger bonds of unity than those who share in the name of Christ. Christians from all over the globe, from different cultures, communities, and countries, we all share in this common bond of unity, being unified in Christ and being unified by the indwelling spirit. This breaks down barriers, especially cultural barriers, doesn't it? One of the many things that we have a crisis in today in our society. Guess what? When you're in Christ, there is no more identity crisis. Why? Where's your identity? Your identity is in Christ. All the saints, we share in this common identity. We're in unity in Christ. This brings me to point number three. Because of all these things, the effectual mature church serves in love. Ephesians 4.16 says, From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul uses similar language. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, verses 14 through 17. He states this, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, 
I do not belong to the body. That would not make me make it any less a part of the body than if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would there be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. That I cannot say to the hand, hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Big statements, a lot of a lot of scripture there. What are, we, what are we? What are the same things that we pull from that? Well, have you ever seen a body where there are no joints or ligaments, muscles or tendons, heart or mind, etc.? No. How would a body move with no ligaments, joints, or tendons? It can't. It would be stiff as a board. Do you see a glimpse in the language here used here used Christ as the head of the body? We too are one in mind in the likeness of Christ and therefore are unified in thought, being joined together, many of us, which makes up the different parts of the body functioning properly, each one supporting the other. Without another part of the body, the whole body would suffer. Just ask anyone who's had, has a bad foot or toe. Know anybody like that? They begin to walk funny. And the longer that person continues to limp along, the, the more the whole body tends to give out. Pretty soon it, it starts affecting the other areas of the body. The hip will dislocate, and then the knee gives out. Now the back is hurting because the hip is out. Pretty soon you aren't going anywhere. The whole person is basically at a standstill. Maybe if you're a really high-functioning person in pain, you just try to push through the thing, pain. <clears throat> but even at that, it starts to affect the mind. And the whole attitude of the person is thrown off. This applies directly to the congregation. Folks, if you're not using your gifts and serving the body correctly as God has gifted to you, the body's not going to function correctly. 
And when one of those gifts is left out, it starts to affect everything. Therefore, we are reminded that each one of us who uses his gifts according to what is given supports the whole body. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who powers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit of the common good. Brothers and sisters, abiding part of being one with Christ and with the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, God is going to bring these things about into your, into your life. You're, you're going to yield them. You, you are going to start seeking forms of service, serving the body in the church. These things, it builds the church up. It edifies the church. It edifies the body. It encourages us. So the service of each member according to the riches given by Christ builds up the body. It grows to even greater maturity in Christ, building itself in love. So as the body serves one another, then even more maturity comes. And because you are growing in maturity and cultivating the spiritual gifts he has given you, your love for the Lord deepens. Because your love for the Lord deepens and you're serving one another, love for one another deepens. All this is happening because the Lord has has first loved us and given us these gifts and has made this all possible for us to love Him. And this becomes a revolving cycle over and over again. The love of Christ empowers us, desire to know Him more, then that knowledge reflects in our hearts and not through the working of our hands. It causes our love for each other to deepen, and because our love for each other has deepened, we serve one another, and that causes our relationship with the Lord to deepen. And that, brothers and sisters, is the church that glorifies God. And this all begins with, because he began a work in us. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you bestowed on every saint. Lord, I pray that you would um, direct us, Lord, that you use your Holy Spirit to help us to apply those gifts to our lives, Lord, to help us to be obedient to your leading, just to serve one another here in this body, community, Lord. You would be glorified, Lord, that you would be honored. Lord, help us to honor each other through this, through this gifting of the of, uh, spiritual gifts, Lord. Help us that these things would point us to you and, and grow us, Lord, in our, 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 our unity and our maturity. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.